interested in taking a deep dive each week into a compliance or compliance-related topic? Then Compliance Into the Weeds is the podcast for you. Join Matt Kelly, the coolest guy in compliance, and Tom Fox, the voice of compliance, as they go into the weeds to flesh out a story which you can use to better inform your compliance program. Both you and your compliance program will be the better for listening to this podcast. Compliance Into the Weeds is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. In this episode of Compliance Into the Weeds, Matt Kelly and I take a deep dive into one of the most interesting court cases I've read recently, the case of Citibank, which erroneously wired some $900 million out uh, for its client, Revlon, erroneously. Citibank was supposed to wire out interest payments to creditors and wired out the entire amount of the loan due. Lawsuit is around Citibank's attempt to recoup that money. Turns out they could not do so by legal doctrine entitled Value for Discharge. We'll talk about that legal doctrine in the podcast. It's delicious legal doctrine that's basically finders keepers. Um, but we also take a look at some of the compliance issues that arose. First around internal controls. We take a look at training. We take a look at complexity in corporations and how the simple fact that legacy systems are bolted together, often held together with bailing wire, can be a fatal flaw leading to uh, something as catastrophic as this $900 million bar. Tom Box, the voice of compliance, back again with Matt Kelly, the coolest guy in compliance. Hello, Tom. Good to be here. Today, Matt, we are going to take up one of the most delicious lawsuits and law cases I've come across in quite some time, and it involves the uh, hiccup by Citibank of paying $900 million of its own money to creditors of Revlon, who Revlon owed money to. We had a court decision come out, I believe, last week, and it went into excruciating detail. And the more I read and and studied it, in addition to the absolute delicious legal um, ramifications, was I found a lot of compliance lessons and angles in this case. So I thought maybe uh, we could start with, uh, if you could summarize the torturous facts of this case. Yeah, this is uh, pretty painful for Citibank, I imagine. Here's what happened is that, uh, as you said, Citibank had been the administrator of a loan from a bunch of lenders to Revlon for roughly, I think, about a billion dollars or so, and that had been being paid down for several years. Uh, Fast forward to August of 2020, when Revlon, uh, when Citibank was supposed to pay $1.8 million to the lenders in interest payments. However, uh, Citibank's operations team, which actually were not Citibank employees, uh, Citibank had subcontracted this out to YPRO, the Indian outsourcing firm. Uh, some of the YPRO employees who were working for Citibank misunderstood the payment application that Citibank used to send money outside of the bank. So instead of paying $7.8 million in interest, the employees accidentally paid $900 million of the entire loan amount to the lenders. Um, now, when that actually came to light the following day, Citibank realized what done. Uh, Citibank promptly alerted those lenders this had been sent 
sent in mistake. You please send the money back to us. Uh, about some of them did, and Citibank got back four hundred million dollars. However, the US still sitting on five hundred million dollars said no way. Uh, we thought Revlon was printing the whole loan. We're not entirely convinced that Revlon, whose finances are stretched, we'll put it that way, uh, the lender said, we're not sure that Revlon actually is going to be able to pay back the loan according to its normal repayment schedule. We thought it was a prepayment, too. We're keeping it. Uh, Citibank did not like this. Citibank went to court. And last week, a judge decided, uh, no, Citibank, uh, you, the lenders do get to keep that $500 million under something that is a discharge for value law. Um, I have to admit, my New York banking legal expertise may be a little bit out of my fear. So I don't know all of the legal involved. Basically, uh, yeah, lenders got prepaid by mistake and they get to keep it. Well, Matt, that that's actually where uh, you're wrong. You do know a lot more about the legal principles in this case than you know. And I would ask you to think back to uh, when you were a very little Matt Kelly and before radical compliance was even a gleam in your eye, the legal doctrine, finders, keepers. Well, that's what the <clears throat> discharge for value defense is. It's the finders, keepers rule. It's been enshrined in the restatement of torts since 1937. It's a well-established law in New York. And I'm going to read it, uh, one, because I'm a geek and I just can't explain to you how delicious this is. So what That's is right. the discharge for value defense? A creditor of another or one having a lien on another's property who has received from a third person any benefit in the discharge of the debt or lien is under no duty to make restitution therefore, although discharge was <laughs> although the discharge was given by mistake of the transferor as to his interest or duties. If the transferee make no makes no misrepresentation and did have not have notice of the transferor's mistake, so this is a, a very obscure legal principle, only applicable to the discharge of debts, which says that if Tom Fox owes Matt Kelly five dollars and one cent, and five dollars and one cent appears in the form of a check, cash, or direct transfer to your account you may rightly assume and indeed legally hold that money because you have not received any additional money than you were due. You were due and owing that $5.01. You did not make any representation which caused myself or my bank to transfer you that money. And there's a lot of uh, business principles, but also legal principles wrapped up in all of this. But perhaps we could go back to the system error that Citibank made, because I found that really the starting point for uh, many compliance lessons. Uh, maybe I could take a stab at, at the facts on that, Matt. Um, Go right ahead. So because of the loan consolidations uh, made by Revlon, what they were accused of is one group of creditors uh, had loans collateralized and Revlon allegedly stripped out that collateral to make other loans. So the first group of creditors was not happy. The second group of creditors wanted to uh, adjust the payment schedules for the interest payments, not the principal due. The first group of creditors objected to any of that because they did not believe the second group of creditors was entitled to anything. And indeed, the first group of creditors had issued notices of default to Citibank uh, after Revlon announced this is what they were going to do. 
Citibank was the administrator, um, a third third party uh, arm's length administrator with no dog in this hunt at all. And but Citibank could not uh, consolidate all of the interest payments due to the first and second group of creditors in their system without creating an account called a wash account, which allowed uh, all the monies due to be put into that. But more importantly, they had to say to their software that they were paying off the entire principal. So uh, City, they had a systems software failure because they couldn't do what Revlon wanted to and the second group of creditors agreed to. What they did was <clears throat> uh, write a workaround and in that workaround, uh, there was, um, because it was a workaround, there were three boxes that had to be checked off. One was principal, and I can't remember what the other two were, but the key was that principal box. And uh, there's a screenshot of that in the court decision. We're going to link to that in the show notes. And it is uh, straight out of AOL 1991. Uh, it's just hilarious. And while most people would think, well, if we're going to pay the principals, we'll check principals box. Well, in this case, it was the antithesis. If you check the principals box, the principals were not to be paid. But equally importantly, um, there were two additional boxes you had to check. And those two additional boxes were not checked. So the entire principal and interest was wired out to the creditors by mistake. Um, Citibank did uh, the next day recognize their mistake and they initiated um, communications with the creditors to pay the money back. Some 400 million was voluntarily paid back. A group of creditors, largely the first group, said, no, we're not going to pay you back. Um, and Citibank had to sue them. So that's how the court case came about. But what struck me was the, the complexity of the system. And we have hinted at that or perhaps even talked about that in other podcast episodes. But here we had uh, legacy uh, banks bought with legacy systems mm -hmm. operated by not even Citibank, but as you correctly note, offshore in India, uh, who were trained to execute a series of box clicks uh, to uh, go through with the uh, payments. And it's not clear from the court decision whether a mistake was made, meaning somebody clicked one but not the other two, or they didn't receive adequate training uh, to know what to do with those three. The second point is, in addition to a software failure, it was a financial controls failure because Citibank had what was called the six eyes principle. Three uh, separate people had to approve this transaction. So it went from uh, clerk to manager to senior manager. Each of the manager and senior managers approved without clicking the correct boxes. The court seemed to make some note that uh, before the execute or enter button was hit, uh, a message popped up that said, "You uh, are you aware that monies are being transferred out of the bank? That's supposed to be a warning, but of course, since the interest was to be transferred out of the bank, no one thought anything of that warning. So the they had a complex um transaction to execute. They had software which was inadequate to the task, and then they had financial controls uh, that failed as well. And that's just on the Citibank side. We haven't even got to the creditor side yet. What did you see in that fax? 
Well, uh, I actually, so I lagged the financial application is something worth attention. I had three big lessons here, and that was the third, but I'll up to since we brought this up. What is remembering is that the financial application, which is called FlexCube and is designed and built by Oracle, uh, FlexCube actually would have worked in a fairly straightforward way for the process it was typically intended to do to send a lot of money out, including paying loans, because People prepay down their loans all the time. Um, and what is interesting to me is actually several weeks ago, I had a post about a study of financial executives and their frustrations over internal control. And the number one thing that they were unhappy about and they felt unease about is internal control over transactions they're trying to manage, which is exactly what the problem is here. This application, Flexube, was designed to be able to prepay down loans very easily. It was not designed to let you split things up where you would only be paying the interest, which is the case here. Uh, there are various other small technical details I don't understand. But basically, um, this application was designed not to do what Citibank was trying to do. So they came up with this extra rigmarole of checking the boxes and all this and make sure that you're going to technically prepay the loan, but then the principal goes off to which come back to city and yada, yada. Way too much complexity for something like this. And what I thought was interesting with the six eyes principle, because they somehow misuse this. Now, were they poorly trained? Were they at the switch? Who knows? But they that they they had the right documentation only paying the interest. And so they said, okay, we're good to go. And there are uh, excerpts in the lawsuit where the manager and the processor were both saying, we're done. Here's the documentation. So everybody was looking at flawed documentation in the wrong way. So of course, six up, good, good, good. And poof, because nobody really thought about the risks around here, around this non-standard uh, transaction and how you would force it through a financial location that wasn't really designed to do what the bank was apparently trying to do here. So there was a lot right there. But Tom, I also thought another important internal control lesson was actually more about consider what your control environment communicates to people inside your business. Because a lot of the hinges on the point that the lender figured, oh, Okay, we have suddenly what looks to be a prepaid loan. It's shown up in our bank account. I guess we have a prepaid loan because nobody would be so dumb as to prepay $900 million by mistake of all Citibank, right? That is exactly what all the lenders thought. And that is exactly what the judge said. Like, you can't blame them because whoever was Citibank would make such a boneheaded, boneheaded error. Um, and he called it a black swan event, which it is. And I, I've got more to say swans in a moment. But it's an idea to tug on. What is your control environment saying to others so that, you know, how are they going to interpret actions? Now, if, you know, actually, I, this was an important part of the discharge for value law that I, I thought was worth calling out. Like, if I owed you $2 and you saw that I paid 20000 
people might say, okay, clearly that's an error. He zero key one time too many. Or if I paid you 3000 I hit the wrong at three instead of two. Like you can reasonably surmise maybe this. But if I owe you $2,117.40, you see that I have paid $1,142.17. You're not going to say, oh, well, that was a mistake. And that's exactly what was the dynamic here is that everybody saw the act amount was paid and nobody would have ever said, well, geez, man, at least of all city, this has to be a pre, what else could, and then we're off to the races of this disaster. So those are a couple of the other thoughts that I had. Well, let me take that third, uh, third one on what does your control environment demonstrate the other to others? Because I want to talk about the creditors and you're absolutely right that the creditors received literally to the penny the amount they were owed. And so they received this money. Some said exactly what you said, which is, well, it can't be a mistake because it's Citibank. But there were other, the other group I found equally interesting, and that was, uh, once again, these uh, uh, the original group of creditors who were up in arms about Revlon's actions. They thought this was actually a nefarious action by Revlon and Citi, to try to get control of the bankruptcy. So because of where they were in that proceeding and their deteriorated relationship with Revlon, they were predisposed to think that this was Citi and Revlon uh, playing chess while they were playing checkers. And they didn't want to get caught with everyone knowing they were playing checkers. So I found that that part uh, very interesting. But that leads to uh, perhaps the, uh, a couple of policy discussions that I thought were fascinating and the judge touched on those, and it's really the basis for the um, value for discharge uh, defense. And that is, do you as a creditor have the right to uh, rely upon the discharge of a debt literally to the penny? and Or uh, do you have to pick up the phone, call the borrower, call the administrative uh, agent here at Citibank, or in any way else do perform due diligence to see if this payment, even if unexpected, um, was incorrectly sent. And that, I thought the judge really uh, uh, talked about that in in the the policy argument part of his decision. And that's the reason there's this carve out in the restatement of torts for the discharge of a debt, even if uh, mistakenly paid because the creditors, they were not unjustly enriched. They did not receive more than they were entitled to. Um, they may have received it before they were entitled to, but that's that's not uh, the concern of this, this part of the restatement carve-out. And as a policy matter, um, do we want to have, and, and if I could contrast that with uh, the perhaps converse, which is in a system where there are people and processes, you have to have a way to unwind mistakes in some sort of adjudicated or gentlemanly or some matter other than dueling pistols at 20 paces, because there are always going to be mistakes, whether it's a red pen and a black pen and a big old uh, uh, bank book, or whether it's uh, FlexCube software, uh, mistakes are going to be made. So you have to have a way to unwind those mistakes in a reasonable manner. And it seems to me those are two obviously different policy um, angles or positions. And the judge came down on the side of certainty. Did you see anything in either of those? Well, in a roundabout way, yeah, uh, because the, the other point that I want to bring up was when the judge called this a black swan event. Um, I think he's right. It is a black swan event. 
But I think my question then would for others would be, how can you design your policies, your internal controls to better identify a black swan event as such, to more recognize of others? Um, because the thing here is that while this was a black swan event for Citibank, it's not necessarily obvious a black swan event to other people. Like I said, everybody prepays all the time happens in banking every single day. So it's not a black swan event like aliens landing on the lawn or terrorists flying into the World Trade Center, which immediately that's a black swan event. No, and we all see it as such. Um, this was only a a kind of sort of black swan event for one side, but all of the lenders were saying, okay, we were owed this by city, uh, by Revlon. Here, I guess they paid it off. Um, so how could you develop policies, procedures, and internals to make black swan events more recognizable to others? The judge actually gave a great example of where city came up short on that is um, the calculation notices which I guess is a term of art in banking, but uh, this is that you might send to a lender back and forth that, you know, we're going to be paying you this amount on this day. The Citibank had no real set policy on how to generate those calculation notices, how to communicate them to other parties, when if they had just had a solid policy about that, where they would have said something to the lenders, you're going to tomorrow. It's for $7.8 million. It's for interest. If you had anything else, that's going to be a mistake. If they had just had a policy and then suddenly everybody sees $900 million, none of this would have happened. And you and I would be talking about something else. But they didn't have those kind of policies. And the judge was, um, I think, fairly critical of Citibank in a fairly legalese way, but basically saying you didn't have any policies or procedures around those calculation notices, which would have made this black swan event stand out much more as such. And then I think Citibank would have been on much firmer legal footing to say, you knew full well this was a mistake, so give us our money back. And then I'd be much more sympathetic to Citibank. So let me go back to um, something you said earlier, because this is why I don't think this is a black swan event, or conversely, this is why I think you can actually plan and put controls around these. This was a uh, transaction which was out of scope for the software. And yep. because of that, they had to create, uh, either create or somehow jury rig a way to do this. Uh, I heard a long time ago, I had a supply chain guy told me that the times companies get in trouble in the supply chain is when they grant an exception and don't document it. And this seemed to me to be an exception here to the software protocols. And anytime you have a, or you called it non-standard transaction, anytime you have a non-standard transaction, that's where the risk occurs. And that's where you need to have either a compensating control or, you know, maybe eight or 10 eyes, or at least put it through some other form of review so that you can see that, yes, this is a non-standard um, transaction. These are the controls we're going to put around it. And it's not going to happen very often, but we're going to have this control when a non-standard transaction takes place. So it, it seems to me that that's actually something you can you can build a control around. Well, in theory, yes. And if we want to uh, pull out our, our quibbling pens and fight over this. So you're proposing a transaction level control, which would work. 
And I would say, and I think the judge was trying to say, that city should have had a process level control for all transactions, standard or not, that you get advance notice sent from Citibank to the recipients every single time. You're going to get this sort of amount of money for this reason on this date. And if something weird happens, then you know that's an error. And if they have a policy like that, that allows them to make this error and claw it back. I'm not saying you should make that error. I'm not saying they should be carefree about that and then start jerry-rigging their financial applications to high heaven uh, to handle non-standard transactions, which is what Citibank did. But because it did not have the process-level controls above that to help steer all transactions the right way, they wound up with a mess on their hands. And and here we are. So uh, maybe turn to some compliance uh, lessons learned, because I saw a couple, and we've touched upon these throughout this show. The first one is just complexity. Uh, yeah. In fact, my blog post is going to be uh, uh, too big to get it right. Uh, what happens when you're, because you're a multinational, you have grown through acquisition uh, over a multiple period of years, you probably don't even know the legacy systems you have. How do you ensure or how can you have a, uh, a compliance program that is not going to have one of these events if you don't have either a transactions or system control? And how can we help the compliance practitioner think through what might be too complicated? It's a very good question. Um, the short answer is that this is why you need uh, business analysts and internal audit and compliance analysts all looking at business processes to be able to see where their risks lie and how you would then implement proper controls. And like I said, Tom, you know, you can overcomplicate the process by maybe putting on extra transaction level controls, or you could simplify it by trying to attack it at the process level. Um, Look, we're not going to come up with any universal answer that all firms could use for all instances on this podcast, but appreciate the challenge here. Like internal audit and compliance analysts, they exist for a reason. And this is the reason. Um, what I think is maybe even more painful is that this happened at Citibank when last summer the Office of the Comptroller of the Currency slapped Citibank and its parents, Citigroup, they slapped them around. $400 million fine and an exhaustive action plan for corrective actions around risk management, compliance risks, um, reporting duties that had to be strengthened. Like Citibank has a mess on its hands. This is a manifestation of the bigger systemic compliance challenges it has had. Uh, I think it brings up a very valid point that you mentioned, Tom, that uh, so many banks acquire so many other banks, and you've got all of these legacy systems trying to work together. You know, some other podcast we could talk about some of the IT solutions to pierce that, but it's a big problem. And you know, this is just a glaring example of what can go wrong if you don't think about proper risk management and compliance risk support uh, management systems all the time, especially for large financial firms. Here we are. The other thing I thought about was uh, training, because as I said earlier, it's not clear to me why this mistake was made with checking the boxes or not checking the boxes. If if it was uh, a training issue, uh, perhaps the doc was the documentation itself incorrect. 
Was this such an unusual and one-off transaction? No one had considered even what you had to check or how you had to check it. Um, so I wondered if compl- does compliance need to think through how to simplify uh, the most complicated uh, procedural or systems concepts so that someone knows yes or no or pick up the phone and call someone? You know, there's a lovely line from the judicial ruling here. Let me just read it out that over the course of the day, Citibank managers learned that the principal payments were not caused by technical error, but by human error over the course of the day. And I just I would love to know what was the course? How did this actually come to light? You know, what was the dawning realization there that there was a human error? And what what you like you said, we don't have much light in the um, the litigation itself and in the court ruling is to, was this a, was, was somebody asleep at the switch? Was somebody poorly trained? We don't know. I do think, yes, all things being equal, the simplest process works better and you should be looking for that. Um, on the other hand, there are compelling reasons to have outsourcing and uh, so, you know, aggressive cost containment measures such as using an outside uh, outsourced employment provider or services firm like YPRO to be able to handle a lot of these back office operations. Most large companies do that now. Um, so like, I don't know. I don't Was the fault YPROs that their employees weren't that good? Was the fault Citibanks that they relied on too many moving parts to get this done when it should have been simpler? Probably a little bit of both. I would love to know the results of any invest, internal investigation Citibank has had into exactly how this happened. Um, but it's just it is a, a great big warning sign for other companies about the dangers of complex processes to get things done. So when I read that line, I remember I recalled the first time I went to China on business, and I was sitting at my computer. Uh, in the hotel room, and I saw the sunrise literally across the world. First, uh, Indonesia came online, then India came online, then North Africa came online, then London came online, then New York came online. And when I read that that particular line in the decision, I could just imagine uh, the Citibank employees uh, charged with this matter uh, across the globe waking up to saying, uh, why, why, why have you sent $900 million of our money out? Yeah. So, uh, I thought it was a very metaphorical line uh, from a very interesting opinion by the judge. Is there, any, um, is there any clean takeaways that we can give the compliance practitioner one or two lessons from this, Matt? Well, I would definitely think a lot about what are the black swan events. And I know that's almost nonsensical to say because by definition, people would say black swan events are things you never would predict or foresee. Um, But try to think about what are the black swan events that would happen and how can we identify them? Um, Or how, how can we do our best to make sure that when a black swan event happens, it is immediately understood that it is a black swan event. I think that Um, The tort claims get a whole lot more easier to manage once you can show everybody knew right away that this was a complete strange thing. Um, That was the death knell, I thought, from Citibank, was that uh, so many people, and, and if you read the legal opinion, you'll actually see some of the excerpts of chats that the lenders had among themselves, like, oh my God, 
wait, did they actually do this? Somebody's going to get fired. You know, they just, it goes on and on. It's quite funny, but none of them ever thought that Citibank of all institutions would be so bad as to make such a colossal error. So it had to be right. And, you know, it's, it's a point to think about is what are you projecting as your control environment? Uh, How would others interpret it? You know, Make sure that whatever you're projecting, your internal control policies and activities would actually be able to support that, which was not the case here. Um, but that that's probably the big takeaway I would recommend. Well, Matt, for me, it was really two things. One was I still think that there was a training problem here, that some, somehow the right information was not communicated. But it also really drove home to me uh, complexity and mm-hmm. how you have to find a way to tame complexity. There was one FCPA enforcement action, Johnson Controls, where uh, Johnson Controls internal audit went to a Chinese business unit and they could not determine how they were doing business. And part of it may have been they were hiding the way they were doing business. Part of it may have been the way uh, uh, Chinese books and records were set up. Nevertheless, if you can't figure out how you're doing business. It's uh, you, you need to stop. And yep. that was sort of the message here for me. Complexity is here to stay, but with greater uh, macro vision, literally across organizations, you're going to have to figure out a way to tame complexity. Very true. Well, this was just a fascinating case. Uh, I hope the listeners understand how much fun it is for us lawyer geek types, because they really went, when you can quote the restatement of torts one, not two, you know, you're in good stead. So I look forward to seeing what next week brings us, Matt. All right, Tom, take care. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of Compliance Into the Weeds. I hope you will join Matt and I each Monday at 3 p.m. Central where we live stream Compliance Into the Weeds. And you can pitch questions to us and be part of the engagement and commentary. If you have any questions for Matt, you can reach him at mkelly at radicalcompliance.com. If you have questions for me, you can reach me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. I hope you've enjoyed this episode and I hope you will uh, join us again for an audio podcast or the live stream once again at 3 p.m. Central Time each Monday. Compliance Into the Weeds is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network and a proud member of C-Suite Radio. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.